You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Outdoor Edge knows that providing a freezer full of meat is part of the reason we all hunt. And what better way to bring it full circle than to process your own wild game? Outdoor Edge provides a full lineup of traditional and replaceable blade hunting knives and complete wild game processing kits to bring your wild game from the field to the freezer. Visit OutdoorEdge.com and at checkout, enter the discount code N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. And what is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast, your home for all things outdoors in the Badger State. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and we're sliding into March, and I'm itching to get out on the trout streams and start catching some browns on the fly and to start some pre preseason turkey scouting. But, uh, hey, there's still a bit more of winter fun to have, still fish to catch out there on the hard water, still some postseason deer scouting to be done, still a ton of of shed hunting to be done but hey man time is short and uh, these sunny days have me craving spring I don't know about you but uh, yeah I just can't wait to get out I'm always looking forward to that next thing speaking of that next thing we've got a great episode in store for you today I'm joined with Jeff Pritzel the deer program specialist for the state of Wisconsin. Jeff was on prior to the deer hunting season to discuss what we could expect across the state as far as hunting goes. I wanted to have Jeff back on to hear whether or not the season sort of lived up to the expectations that we talked about back in uh, late August. Each year, the DNR puts out uh, reports based on the harvest data and randomized hunter surveys, and the DNR is currently compiling this information for release in March. And I wanted to get a little bit of a sneak peek into that information and figure out what we can glean from that. A few interesting things that stood out to me from the data that Jeff and I talked about. Uh, the first is, despite a slower opening uh, weekend of the general firearm season, the harvest numbers were still pretty strong. Usually, we uh, we don't do a good job recovering. Like, if we have a slow opening weekend, then the harvest numbers are typically way lower. But uh, we recovered quite a bit uh, from that slow opener. Uh, second, there was there were some really, really low numbers of hunting accidents, which is wonderful, wonderful news. And that's a, a trend that's been uh, spanning decades at this point. So way to go, Wisconsin hunters. Uh, we are hunting more and more safely every single year. Uh, and then also another another interesting thing is that uh, there's some, some differences and some changes happening whenever it comes to hunters deciding whether or not to pull the trigger. There's a lot going on there, and it's not just, uh, hey, whether or not this buck is big enough or, hey, whether or not uh, I have a doe tag in my pocket. There are a few other things going on there, and Jeff and I kind of get into that just a little bit. Finally, 
we're going to talk about how we can each get involved with our county deer advisory council meetings to voice our opinions and to stay informed. Uh, so it's a great conversation. Stay tuned for that. A few housekeeping items. First, be sure to follow or subscribe to this podcast wherever it is. You access your podcasts. Leave us a five-star review and a written review if you are so inclined. Share this podcast with a buddy who might also be interested in the things we talk about on here. We've got some strong content lined up for the spring. I think they will thank you for sharing it with them. And uh, finally, you can follow along with us on Instagram, which is my primary way of getting to interact with you, the listener. Feel free to reach out to me on there. Hit me up with some topics that you want to hear about as we head into the spring. Finally, uh, I've got some exciting news. This episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast is brought to you by Overwatch Outdoors, makers of the Transformer and Orion tree saddles. If you haven't tried saddle hunting yet, I highly Highly recommend you give it a try. It's a great tool to add to your hunting toolkit to uh, help you level up your game in the whitetail woods. If you've been wondering about saddle hunting and if it lives up to all the hype, you can go back and listen to the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast episode number eight called Is Saddle Hunting Just a Fad? Where I have Jamie Klein, who is the owner of Overwatch Outdoors, on. And uh, we talk about all the pros and cons of saddle hunting. And I can tell you from that conversation, Jamie is not a salesman. He's not a guy trying to get you to buy his product. He wants to make you a more effective and a more comfortable deer hunter. That is his mission. And if it means you do that out of a tree stand, then so be it. If it means you do that out of a, of a, of a saddle from another saddle company, then so be it. But if it means you do that out of one of his saddles, then he wants to make you the best saddle possible. Jamie's a fantastic, fantastic guy. Uh, really have enjoyed getting to work with him. Here's what I know. Saddle hunting has allowed me to be more mobile, more efficient, and quieter while deer hunting. And that has translated to more deer in range more often. Now, uh, I don't know of any other tool in my toolkit that I can say that much about, that I can speak that highly about. And I've recently had the chance to get my hands on the Overwatch Outdoor Saddles. And let me tell you, these saddles are, in my opinion, the absolute best saddles on the market right now. They are built to last. They are made of uh, berry compliant materials and the comfort is second to none. Overwatch currently has two different models that they sell. Their first is the two panel saddle called the Transformer. This is kind of their claim to fame. The very first one to come out on the market uh, it has two separate panels that allow you to get this saddle really dialed in, dialed in to provide support right where you want it. And the ability to get one panel sort of all the way underneath you and have the other one positioned for lower back support is absolutely perfect for those guys who prefer to sit in their tree saddles. The adjustment straps that it has on the back mean that once you get those panels dialed into your desired adjustment, you won't have to worry about anything slipping. Uh, it's going to be right where you want it the entire time that you're hanging in the tree. And then when you're ready to walk out of the woods or when you're walking into the woods, you just tighten down those adjustment straps and the panels hold tight to hold tight to you. So there's no unwanted flapping that can come with a two panel saddle. The second model from Overwatch Outdoors is called the Orion. This saddle is brand new and uh, each and every single Orion is custom made by Jamie himself. This saddle is a single panel saddle with a pleated seat, which provides more of a uh, kind of a cupping effect that keeps the saddle from 
riding up on you like many of the single panel saddles on the market can do. I'm a single panel guy personally. I tried out the Transformer. It wasn't for me. I really loved it. It It's really comfortable, but I mostly like to lean back in my saddle as opposed to sitting down in my saddle. And uh, yeah, the Orion just fit me uh, just right. And you know what? When I sit in it, I am extremely, extremely comfortable in it. But uh, yeah, just for my hunting style, I like to uh, I like to lean about 95% of the time. A few other things I love about the Orion. First, the leg straps have these actual uh, have buckles on them instead of the little G hooks like some other saddles have that uh, for me are constantly coming undone and they're just a pain in trying to get them get them hooked on. Uh, the second thing I love about this saddle is it is sturdy enough to handle both of my dump pouches without any sagging as I walk in. I like to carry my ropes and some other gear on dump pouches on my sides, and I really don't like for to feel like that's pulling my saddle down the whole time or uh, with some of the other saddles that are maybe a little, how can I say this, a little lighter, a little lighter on the material. Uh, it can kind of feel like they're they're really jerking on your belt. And uh, but then the the, uh, the um, Orion saddle has a two inch wide webbing for for the belt, and so it's going to be sturdy enough to hold up to any weight that you're going to be putting on it. And then finally, the craftsmanship on both of these saddles is just absolutely remarkable. It is, uh, yeah, I can't say enough about it. You've got to hold one of these things in your hand to really believe it. From the moment I opened the box, I could tell that the build quality on this saddle is just different. So if you're ready to try a saddle, head over to overwatchoutdoors.net. You can order the Transformer saddle directly from the website. Uh, To get a hold of the Orion, which is my personal favorite, you have to reach out to Jamie, overwatchoutdoorsgear at gmail.com, or you can give Jamie a call or a text at the number on his website. You can also find Overwatch Outdoors on Instagram and Facebook by simply searching Overwatch Outdoors. Now, with all that good stuff out of the way, let's jump right into talking deer hunting with Jeff Pritzel. All right, back on the podcast with me today is Jeff Pritzel, the deer program specialist for the state of Wisconsin. How's it going, Jeff? It's going great, Josh. Glad to be back. Yeah, super happy to have you back on the episode. I know we wanted to catch up after deer season when some of the data started coming in uh, so that we could figure out, okay, what kind of season did we have here in the state of Wisconsin? But before we get into all of that, I do want to hear, how did your season go? Oh, sure. Um, well, I had a pretty good deer season with a, just as is the case, I'm sure with everybody, little ups and downs. I, um, I didn't get serious about it like others probably until late October. I mean, early October was just kind of warm and muggy and sluggish. And, and we saw that it, even in our harvest stats, but I spent a fair amount of time as we got into the, the, the busy time with the rut, um, probably for the first time myself, I was a little bit picky, not not because I was selectively chasing a particular deer, but I had, um, I quite honestly, was still sitting on some venison from last year. And, and I think that was the case. We'll get into that maybe a little bit later. But I had kind of said, you know, I'm either going to take a really young a fawn or a, a buck bigger than I've ever taken before, just during that time of the year. And Neither presented the opportunity, <laughs> so I spent some time out at time of the year. But then um, during the gun season, um, you know, I look at the gun season as many do is probably this is the time now where I hope to put something in the freezer. And I did a little bit of both. I, I went up north into the Great Northwoods opening weekend at a real quiet weekend, like a lot of people did. But, um, 
didn't see a deer actually in three days of hunting, but that's what you get sometimes up north. And, but then I had the fortune to, to come home to the farmland and, um, and a little bit of effort. I, I did take uh, an adult doe during the nine day season. And then I took another one during the four day antlerless season in December. So, um, and I hadn't had, I hadn't actually, and just by chance, um, hadn't shot an antlerless deer, I think in three years. And so I kind of went into this year too, with a little bit of, I better practice what I preach. And so I, where normally I'm not a selective, you know, buck hunter pass on bucks. I'm, I grew up and worked most of my life with limited opportunities deer hunt because of work. And I took the opportunities I got. And, um, this year I was a little bit more selective. And, and I think we saw that as a, you know, kind of representative of what we see in deer hunters in general this year. So anyhow, did, did get a chance to put some venison in the freezer. So uh, it, was, it was a good year for me. Good, man. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. I, uh, yeah, last time we talked, we were getting ready. We were heading into opening weekend. We were real close to opening weekend and it was looking really muggy. It was looking hot. It was looking like it just wasn't going to be, be good weather, but it, I think the weather kind of turned at the last minute where it was going to be decent. And you sent me an email. You were like, eh, I think I am going to get out after all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I did uh, go just because one of the things that strikes me at the beginning of the deer season, beginning of the archery season, when you climb into that deer stand for the first time when the season's open, that you're just so cognizant of your senses waking up at a level that mm. they don't the rest of the year, right? Yep. You're, you're a hunter now and your, yep. your eyesight and your hearing and everything tunes in. And that is such a cool feeling that I think a lot of time, a lot of us, you go out just to experience that. Yeah, man, that's such a good way of describing it because, you know, I've never had a ton of success in early season. I saw more deer early season this year than I, than I really ever have before, um, you know, f- pretty consistently. But uh, that is, what you just said describes perfectly why I still hunt the early season. Even if I'm not having a ton of success, even if I'm not getting the shots that I'm looking for, just that your, your whole self waking up, you know, from like a long sleep, you know, you yeah, you get yeah. out there and all of a sudden you remember what it's like to uh, factor in, okay, where, what can they see? You know, if I'm walking in along the, the edge of a field, like where are they bedded? Where can they see me? Where is my wind going? How am I going to access? Where do I need to step to be as quiet as possible? sort of all of those things, things coming back is, uh, yeah, waking up. That's a good, that's a good way of putting it. So you mentioned, uh, your deer season was pretty good. You guys at, as a, as a department though, take a really high level view, I guess, of Wisconsinites and their deer season as a whole. Tell me a little bit about, uh, a little bit about that. What kind of deer season did Wisconsin hunters have in general? Yeah, so one of the things we've done annually for a long time is uh, after the all seasons are over, we send out a mail survey to 10,000 deer hunters every year. And we don't make as big a deal of that as I think we should. And I think maybe in the future, we'll try to elevate that um, feedback that we get. One, one of the challenges is to answer your question directly, I we don't know yet. 2021 because that is a slower process um you know the surveys go out in the mail um we tend to get about a 50 percent success rate or return rate which is pretty good um but the reason we still do that old-fashioned in the mail survey is because we can do it more um 
randomized and more neutral, and we can weight it regionally and by weapon type. Um, we used to do it strictly to the gun hunters, and then uh, annually, and then every three or four years, we do the same type of a survey strictly to archers. A um, couple of years ago, we went away from that and just treated in recognition of the, the trends and shifts in deer hunting time and effort um, through that entire year from September through the end of the season. Now we're treating it all together. Um, and so we tend to get about you know 5,000 responses a year, but those have to be you know hand entered and and it and unfortunately we don't get that data to utilize for our deliberations that we're going into now 2022. But what that survey is really doing is developing uh, a database of trends over time. So if I look back over previous years, you know that's what we have, and that's really more informative. And we've been I think we maybe talked about this last time. We've been trying to step a little bit away from the the reactive, the reactions to just how things change this year relative to last year. There's, there's a fair amount of volatility that can happen from one year to the next. And we could talk into that, but so we look about three years or five years back in some cases to try to establish trends. And um, so that's, and those surveys are available on our website. Um, if people want to just look up, they can just type in wildlife reports and you'll see all kinds of stuff, but one of them specifically is the deer hunter questionnaire. And you can read for yourself, you know, the results we got. Right now we have 2020 and 2019 posted. Um, and 2021 won't be up there for a while. Okay. What kind of, uh, of questions are on this survey? Like what kind of information are, are you hoping to gather? Sure. So, yeah, big picture. It is um, hunter effort. So how many days did you hunt? So from that, in general terms, talking about that trend, we tend in Wisconsin to generate about seven to seven and a half million hunting days a year collectively from all hunters. And then we ask them questions like, well, did you get to hunt this year? About 5% of people that purchase a deer hunting license never get out. You know, they have good wow. intentions, buy a license. So it's good to know how that relates then to hunting effort. And, and that stands to reason. I mean, there's a group of people that, that still, you know, hope to get out deer hunting, and but things just don't work out for them. So about 5%, you know, never hit the woods. And then uh, we also ask them, all right, how many deer did you see per hour of effort? We ask that question a number of different ways. But um, again, that kind of gives us an idea of how that is potentially shifting. And, and we'll ask them for their opinion. We'll say, relative to previous years or what your experience was the last couple of years, as you went into this season, what were your expectations? Did you mm. think your opportunity to see or get a buck this year was better or worse than previous years? So that just kind of measures people's attitudes and expectations. And we'll ask the same thing about antlerless deer. And do you think, did you think you were going to see more deer than you did last year or less? And then follow that up with, all right, then what did happen? Did you see more or less? And then we'll even make that even more qualitative by just a couple of years ago, uh, one of the narratives that developed, that's um, going back a while, was that the, we've taken the fun out of deer hunting. 
you know, with the regulations and all that type of stuff. And we need to restore the fun to deer hunting, which is a, uh, a noble thing um, if indeed that's an issue. So we started asking hunters, was your deer hunt fun? And was it mm. more fun than previous years or less fun than previous years? And what was the quality of your hunt in your mind? The good news from those surveys are that the scores are have been coming in uh, above 50%. In other words, more people have said, yeah, my hunt's been fun, or I thought I had a quality hunt, than the number of people that said, no, my hunt wasn't fun, or it, it, the quality's you know, gone down. So, you know, of course, we've been very transparent, and we value in Wisconsin um, hunter input and public input. That's always a challenging thing as to then, well, what do you do with that? Because we know human nature being that you're more inclined to provide input when you're dissatisfied than satisfied, mm -hmm. right? Yep. So it, your your feedback gets weighted um, potentially, you know, to not represent everyone. I mean, if you took it at the highest level, hunters are providing feedback to us simply by purchasing a license and then deciding when and how they pull the trigger. So there's hundreds of thousands of people participating in that as if you wanted to consider it a survey, as opposed to then this, this period of time we're entering into now uh, in March and April and May, where we have a very intensive process with the County Deer Advisory Councils. You know, literally we get less than 1% of the deer hunting public, you know, engaging in that process. Um, so it's still valuable, and it, but it's work to make that, describe that as to what is statistically significant when it's going to influence your, your policy decision. So this survey that we were talking about, the mail survey is really nice because it's, it's, it's random. Um, and, um, and, and we keep it that way again, through mail to, to make it as balanced as possible. And we've got some really talented public survey you know, staff now in the agency and that provides us guidance. And so I think we're, we're going to continue to see improvement and move forward in terms of how we interact with the public and take their feedback. Yeah. That's one of the things that I have most appreciated since being here in the state of Wisconsin is I can see uh, as, as an everyday outdoorsman, I can see that the state takes into account um, my satisfaction with my experience afield. Like you guys, you guys care, you guys are asking about it. Like there are opportunities for me to provide feedback. I, I think that that's fantastic. I, th I think that that's really good. I'm curious, you mentioned earlier that there were people who mentioned or, or were kind of feeling like the fun had been taking out, taken out of hunting. What were some of the regulations that were being pointed to as like, hey, this seems, this seems a little much because uh, again, I, I just started hunting in Wisconsin two years ago. Um, I, I, I don't see, I haven't seen, I guess, how things have changed over the years as far as regulations go. So what was it that seemed a bit, uh, overbearing or, or to take the fun out of it? Sure. Sure. Well, well, I think the pinnacle of it was, you know, and prior to you coming to the state, but I'm betting you've heard about the, the Ernebuck era. Yep. Um, yep. and, and so that it basically comes down to whether hunters, decisions and, uh, and behavior or and opportunities are mandated to them or just, you know, provided through opportunities of, of more, you know, self-driven decisions. So we, we, and this 
this goes back into our history a little bit in terms of one of the prior, I guess, uh, overhauls of the deer management program. And um, at the turn of the century, we had a really big public input program where we worked with Conservation Congress and it was referred to as Deer 2000 and beyond. It was going to be the next remake. You know, this is how we're going to approach deer management going forward, you know, for the next decade or so. Some really good things came out of Deer 2000 and beyond. And in terms of our working relationship with the Conservation Congress, learning more about the different varied stakeholder groups there are attached to deer hunting. That's and, I, and I've said this over and over now is that there's no single average Wisconsin deer hunter. Right? There's yep. a lot of different things at play as far as what people are looking for. But the one thing that came out of Deer 2000 and beyond that we thought was going to be um, great going forward because there's always been a certain degree of strife and debate and second guessing about well what's the agency doing and and they know what they're doing or not but through that process we created a a a more um rigid system of benchmarks and thresholds relative related to each deer management unit's population objective to where it was very standardized that if your population is here relative to where it's supposed to be, here's the season you're going to get. And it, and part of that was because we were challenged with some populations that were growing almost unchecked, uh, the need to become more aggressive. And that's where Ernabuck came from, which actually was a spinoff of a proposal which has popped up over the decades of when things really we got concerned about an inadequate antlerless deer harvest. It's like, let's really put the hammer down and then make it antlerless only. Mm. And that always generates a big pushback of concern. And it's, it's, I don't know that it's ever, it may have happened once in the history of the state, but at any rate, um, we came out of that system with a pretty regulatory, you know, if this is where your deer population is, this is the season you get. There was no discussion about it. Um, and so our, our, our discussions every year at this point went from a genuine open debate, which oftentimes was difficult and uncomfortable, but we'd then arrive at the season and some people, of course, didn't like it and others you know, were okay with it, um, to a, there's no discussion about it. This is the season you're getting mm. and we'll talk about why, but there's not really a debate as to whether we should or shouldn't do this. And, and it culminated with, with Ernabuck. And this, and that's where um, people were being essentially told, this is what you have to harvest. And I think that's what generated the um, taking the fun out of it comments. Gotcha. Um, so that's no longer the case. Um, but the, the flip side of that is we do find ourselves kind of in certain parts of the state, you know, back in a real challenge to generate the antlerless deer harvests that we feel are in the best interests of, of the deer and the deer hunter then. Um, so uh, yeah, we're in a different area so that that we don't get that comment so much anymore. And again, the, the mail survey says in general, people um, you know find their deer hunting experience fun and they look forward to it. And again, they demonstrate that simply by going out and buying a license. Yep. So tell me a little bit. I, I know the surveys aren't uh, the surveys aren't back in quite yet this year, at least not where you guys can uh, sort of analyze all the data that has come in. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've noticed 
from the last couple of years. And, and I know it's not a good idea to maybe build, uh, to read trends into what happened, you know, from let's say 2019 to 2020. But I am curious to hear a little bit about some of the volatility and some of the strange things, specifically with, you know, 2019 and the 2020 deer season. You know, what, what did we see as far as harvest numbers and hunter participation and all of that? Sure. So, uh, yeah, and what, what you're getting at, Josh, there is that, and this volatility happens um, at the more regional level or zone level, which is why we divide the state up into um, four deer management zones, because there's always kind of two different stories playing out at, at the highest level, and, and that's what's going on in the forest zones of the state and, and what's going on at the, in the farmland zones. And yeah, I would say over the last, and, and, and again, the other part of this is a lot of Wisconsin deer management policy and decisions, our annual decisions are based on trend information. So we don't want to look at just what happened last year. We want to look at, at longer term trends. But I'd say the last three years, 1920 and 21, have been somewhat atypical. Um, there's been some influences that that kind of confound the, the trends. And so, for example, it, the, the big one in 2019 was that that was the year where the gun season shifts from being the, the earliest possible to the latest possible. And so that because of the timing of our gun season, you know, that happens every six or seven years on the calendar. Um, we'll see a drop in the gun harvest, and and the gun harvest is still, you know, the the bigger influence on on our overall season. And so, you know, we we dealt with that in in 2019, and, and saw a general reduction in deer harvest that may or may not have been attached to the deer population itself. Then in 2020, of course, was the first year where the pandemic was really potentially influencing. Um, the hunt. And, and that's a question. So in this mail survey we were talking about earlier, we do have the opportunity annually to add in some new questions that may be just timely. And so in 2020, we asked deer hunters, did the pandemic affect your deer season and, and how you went about your deer season? And the general answer uh, to that was no, that I mean, on a scale of one to seven, I mean, people's rating of the influence of the pandemic on their deer hunt was only, was less than two on that on that scale, and so it didn't influence a whole lot of people's decision to go deer hunting. But we saw in the harvest some changes that I think were influenced by decisions um, that the pandemic was influencing in terms of where they deer hunted. Did they go up north? Did they stay home? Did they gather as a camp? Or, or again, did they stay home and, and hunt a little bit differently? Did the, the the experiences that were happening leading up to that deer season with um, meat prices and meat shortage because of what was how the pandemic was affecting the meat packing industry at that time, and the fact that people were really pursuing the outdoors as their uh, recreation and, and their free time in an expanded way. So in 2020, we saw an increase in harvest. Um, and, and especially in antlerless harvest, um, but it, it, in some parts of the state, it, it, it just shifted. And then this past year, um, again, we're 
we we saw some shift back to what maybe some normal patterns and so to compare this year to last year isn't necessarily uh, really indicative of again what's going on long long term but so what what's interesting this year is that whereas in 2019 we saw statewide kind of a shift down in harvest 2020 the shift went up now this year it's all over the board in a few areas most of the state was pretty stable across the the central and and, and, the, and the farmland areas but we saw some some big increases in a couple parts of the state and then some pretty significant drops in other parts of the state and i think the summary there is there's there's enough different variables at play here that it probably isn't wise to try to again make an assessment and say here's what's going on and here's how we're going to change it i think it's more of a hey this is hunting it's going to go up it's going to go down let's let it play out yeah, check it out over the long term. Well, that that takes my uh, my next question then, because I was going to say, well, what do you think contributed to some of these? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not quite ready to to go there just yet. I, I do yeah. have I do have one big question though. We we talked about this the last time I had you on the show, and uh, we talked a bit about how the timing of the gun season impacts the buck harvest. Specifically, the earlier it is, usually the better the buck harvest will be because it's closer to the rut. How uh, so with this year's um, season timing was that was this typical in the the big scheme of things was this a later season was this an earlier season how what would you have expected from this season given the timing of the of the uh, general firearm season sure so we're still kind of on the later side of of the opening so 2019 was the year we we shifted back to a late the latest possible opening and now it'll open one day earlier um until we get back to the earliest potential opening, which is like on the 17th or 18th of November. I think it's the 18th. Um, and so being that it was the 21st or uh, 20th, uh, you know, <laughs> day to day, it's, it's blending to me, but we're, we've got a few years to go yet before we're going to be on the early side of the, of the gun season. So it was, the gun season was generally, I think quiet is probably the best, descripting word in a good way and in a and in some would say a, a bad way because um you know the harvest levels maybe didn't quite hit where we thought they were going to opening weekend uh, was especially quiet relative to what we've seen in, in other years and again then you start well why was that most of the time any reason i might bring up will be interpreted as well that's the department's excuse <laughs> for <laughs> covering why they really don't know what's going on but um the reality is um we were leading in in the in the archery seasons leading up to the gun season the buck kill was getting better and better we were um we started out as i said earlier early season in early october we were running a little behind the five-year average i mean it was Weather just wasn't that conducive, I think, was, was a big part of it. And, and we don't want to use weather as an excuse, but weather has a major influence on, on deer harvest, right? And But things really got good as we got into the breeding season. And so we saw the buck harvest um, you know, climbing quite a bit. And then that kind of generated some anticipation that, hey, this is, we're going to have a good gun season if this trend continues. And and that statewide, it didn't really happen. It kind of leveled mm. out. And then um, 
on Sunday of opening weekend, if you remember, it got really windy and um, our harvest numbers kind of showed that the hunting effort, I think, really dropped off, you know, the second half of, of Sunday. So we, we didn't, we lost some ground on opening weekend of the gun season. And traditionally, opening weekend of gun season is pretty influential. And if we don't have a good opening weekend, we usually don't make up for it. Um, that wasn't necessarily the case this year. We did, we didn't gain all of it back in terms of our expectations but I'd say we made it about halfway back to where we thought the gun season may have, may have played out. Um, so I, I mean, I'll admit, I, I predicted the buck hill was going to come in a little higher than it did. Um, but again, looking back over trends, one of the things we're seeing is, is the buck harvest has been pretty stable um, over time, you know, really since we've, we've started, this deer management system we have now that goes back to 2014. So we can get that, that into that, you know, a little bit later too, but you know, what that tells us is that the harvest numbers, which at one time we used to really look at, especially the buck harvest, we just assumed it was very connected to the deer population. In other words, you know, mm. if the kill went up, that meant the population was going up and vice versa. And that's not, it's still connected. It's, but it's just not as closely connected as it as it used to be. But um, and I, I guess the other big observation I should say over the gun season, and then that really played out over the season as a whole. Um, you know, the the harvest numbers came in ten percent below last year, five um, percent below the five year average. But a big chunk of that drop was made up of a, a drop in antlerless deer harvest in the farmland zone. Um, which is kind of interesting uh, we observed and, and yeah, what's behind that, you know, we could go into, but again, I think there's a host of variables that are influencing that. Yeah. So I, I want to jump back just a little bit to sort of expectations leading into the gun season, because you mentioned that, you know, heading into gun season, there was this expectation that it was going to be a really, a really good one. Right. I, I saw the same thing um, with buck movement, at least, seemed to be on a steady increase uh, the closer we got to gun season. I thought the opening morning of gun season was going to be lights out. And uh, actually two separate trail cameras that I had had very large bucks on them. Uh, the day before gun season, when I did not have a buck tag in my pocket, I'm going to, our listeners won't be able to see this, but I'll show you. I had a very close encounter with, with this guy. Close enough to take that picture on my cell phone. And he, oh, wow. and he uh -huh. was, he was hot on a doe's trail. So I thought, okay, tomorrow morning is going to be insane, you know? Uh, -huh. uh and I didn't see a deer. Uh, well, yeah. Well, yeah. Saw an I mean, antlerless deer, deer, but yeah. I mean, and that was, most people just said, you know, you know, what influences deer movement? And we think we have it all figured out, but there are things that influence deer movement that are out of our control and, or yep. even our anticipations. And, deer stop moving and and that shows up and, and a lot of people have, that I've talked to just said yeah just deer, deer weren't moving and that mm. that has to do partly with that timing of the gun season that we talked about earlier but then also and this isn't new to the last couple of years because this trend has been going on over time but um, our hunting strategies have changed to where the gun hunters are hunting deer more like archers do. In other words, you sit 
in your strategic spot and you wait for the deer to come to you, uh, which is great when it works. It's a great technique, but the collective influence of that is, is fewer hunters are, are moving and moving deer. And that used to be the trademark of the gun season, right? People saw deer um, that were being moved because of hunting pressure. And we've moved away from that. So we're more dependent during the gun season, just like archers are on having good deer movement. You know, yep. going on and if it's not that's you know <laughs> that's how it's that's what's going to happen yeah um interestingly and, and and that's been one of the narratives we you know i talk about it people have talked about it is that well yeah we don't see deer during the gun season like we used to in the good old days um because people just aren't moving deer the way they used but what's interesting about that is is another aspect of our survey that we we're talking about um, and we do this one in a number of ways. We do it in the mail survey. We do it with hunters that successfully register a deer. And we offer the opportunity to all hunters to fill out a deer hunter wildlife survey where we are sent, we're asking them, how many deer did you see per hour of effort hunting? And the interesting thing about that is over the trend, that number is increasing. Hmm. So people that are participating in that survey are telling us we're there's been seeing more deer per hour of effort um over time um but when you listen to deer hunting stories and you listen to what happened over the course of uh you know the gun season or whatever the main story has been ah, i didn't i didn't see anything or i didn't see as many deer as i used to or as i expected but that's where it, it's important to, to both take into consideration the anecdotal information you get, but actually take steps to document it through standardized scientific surveys because you can get two different answers. Yeah, for sure. I, I man, that that is such an uh, such an interesting thing. So, how often our uh, our stories and sort of the the culture and the folklore around deer hunting and and hunter experience stories um, often maybe not contradict, but don't quite line up with what we see these trends doing. Yeah. Well, then I think there's two things that, that play into that. One is, and, and I think they're both, they're, they're human nature, which, which brings up the point that, you know, deer management, deer hunting is as much about human management as it is animal management, right? Mm. And, and yeah. dealing with how we, we think about these types of one of those things is simply our nature to remember things in the past as we remember the good stuff, right? Yep. And we try to try yep. to maybe dismiss the not so good stuff as far as the past goes. But in the present comes when you have a good experience, you want to share that. Um, and, and maybe when you didn't, you're not as inspired to. So for example, we have to take that into account in the survey when we ask people, how many deer did you see per hour of effort? If someone didn't see anything, they might not be as inclined to participate. You know, it's like, yeah. eh, you, know, yeah, you know, but if they saw some deer and felt good about it, they're like, yeah, I, you know, I, I want you to know that I saw this many deer. Um, so that's why, again, we have got some really skilled human dimensions and human survey people on staff now, because it's important to get that part right. So we're not going down a path thinking that we're, we're pursuing a, fixing a problem that maybe isn't there. (laughs) 
Yeah, or may, or maybe we're just misunderstanding uh, right, a little right. bit of the problem. I, I want to jump into something that you mentioned. Um, you mentioned it earlier on here, and then you mentioned it as we we chatted over email leading into this, uh, leading into recording today. Um, you mentioned that hunter decisions about when to pull the trigger are changing, and that it seems like that could be har- uh, impacting harvest numbers. Uh, I'm curious what you mean by that, and what what we see those decisions being. So like what it is driving that. And then if we can forecast maybe, uh, which might be a dangerous thing to, to try to do, but, but if we can forecast, how will that impact the future of deer hunting over the next five years here in the state? Sure, Josh. So the, the, the trend that we're seeing, and again, we're documenting this through, through surveys. We had another project that we did back in 2020 uh, we didn't do it in 2021, but it's going to be picked up again as a as a grad student project, you know, by the same employee through uh, Madison, um, a deer hunter diary effort where we asked a certain number of hunters to, um, and it wasn't throughout the entire fall, but we asked some people to, hey, get, fill out a diary, you know, during the early archery season. And this group, fill out a diary during the gun season. And this group, so we, we sampled different groups. One of the things that came out of that that we were aware of happening, but it, this was like really one of the first documentations of it. The idea was how many oppor- shot opportunities did you were you presented with that you passed up? Hmm. Um, and so, and, and the results from that even kind of caused my eyebrows to go up a little bit in terms of, you know, there's a fair number of people that are having opportunities to take an animal and choosing not to. And, and that just wasn't the case, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it, it sure. seemed, you know, and, and there's, so there's a number of things that that's playing into. It's, it's part of the selectivity and on the good side of people feeling comfortable that they're going to have, well, first of all, you have to have a sense of confidence that I'm going to have a better opportunity, right? So I'm going <laughs> to pass up on this one. Sure, and, sure, yeah. Or I'm willing to not get a deer this year. I'd rather get a particular deer this year than, than any deer. And they're okay with not filling the tag, and so that affects the harvest rate, right? And 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 the and ultimately the survival rates of the animals. And so we have to stay on top of that and track that. Otherwise, our harvest data will start creating, you know, again a misleading interpretation. And we said that earlier that um, just because the buck kill has been pretty stable in recent years doesn't mean the deer population has been stable. Um, I think with some further analysis down down the road, you also can can divide us. You know, we've got six hundred thousand plus deer hunters in the state, and so, and we we kill typically three hundred thousand or more deer. So, you know, in simple math, that's like well, it's a fifty percent success rate, right? You know, about half of the hunters get a deer. Well, we know it's not that simple, right? We've got a certain group of hunters that find themselves in a really good spot or find themselves that they approach it with the idea of um, I'm, this is my main protein source for the year. I'm going to get multiple deer. And so fewer than half of the hunters are, are going to get a deer. And, and so that that smaller group that regularly gets a deer, they're the ones that are kind of driving the decision points of if they're in, in a position where they're going to um, fill, you know, maybe multiple tags, 
but we also know that when you when you include all of the successful deer hunters, I mean, the average deer hunter kills between 1.5 and 1.8 deer a year uh, of this of those that annually get a deer. You know, I'm taking the other half that that don't out of the that that equation for that purpose. But um, yeah, we're just seeing more people selecting to you know be choosier about when they pull the trigger. Mm. And and on the buck side, I think it's pretty straightforward. You know, people think that, you know, are they going to pass a buck, you know, and the idea of letting them, you know, you know, managing, you know, buck age structure and that type of thing. And we get that. That's fine. But then even on, on the antlerless side, and that's the more from a deer management standpoint, it's what's happening on the antlerless side. And that's what's really got me interested. What happened this was that the antlerless harvest dropped in the farmland zone. And I don't think it's indicative that the antlerless population dropped or the opportunities to take antlerless deer dropped. I th- that was, you know, 10% of those deer hunters that typically will shoot an antlerless deer um, opted not to this year. Hmm. And so why is yeah. that? And so that'll be an interesting thing to explore going forward. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious too, how much um, hunting style may be playing into that as, as well. Um, I just thinking of my own experience this past year, I uh, changed things up. I obviously was, was going after a buck, wanted to get a nice one. I changed up my hunting style a little bit. I had uh, higher percentage sits. So I only had one sit for the entire season that I didn't see a deer and I did not see a lot of does. Uh, I, I didn't, I did not see a lot of antlerless deer. Um, but when I, when I did see deer, they were bucks and they were, they were within shooting range. So I, I was, I, I don't know if it was because I was pushing into thicker cover or maybe it was just luck of the draw this year, but I, I saw antlerless deer at a, at a distance, you know, or maybe out in the fields, but I wasn't typically hunting there. So I'm, I'm curious if, if maybe, you know, given trends in the hunting community, if there's a difference in the way and style of hunting that has sort of influenced that as well. Sure, and I think you're you're, you're touching on, on Josh one more variable, right? So I was, I could come up with six different reasons maybe why <laughs> why the antlerless harvest went down, and, and then again, and amongst us we deer hunters, there's that whole spectrum of of hunters that are um, so into this, and they understand, they know that land, they know animal movement patterns, and are positioning themselves very strategically get certain outcomes. And then there's another group of hunters that are just, Hey, I just like being outside and I like hunting and I I'm going to the places that I like, I'm more comfortable with, but they're not putting that much effort into it. And then there's the other, you know, that whole spectrum of, of people. So yeah, that it, it's not one answer, you know, for sure. everybody. Sure. And, um, but yeah, the, what you bring up there is another, another good, you know, good possibility. So tell me, tell me about then, uh, as we're, we're still sort of on the topic of, of deer harvest, you mentioned that um, the number of bucks harvested with firearm equipment versus or with firearm versus archery equipment uh, had had sort of shifted over the last what what you say in the email I think it was thirty years um, and then over the last couple of years that sort of stabilized. Tell me a little bit about what the trend was and maybe what those percentages are. Sure. Well, I think it um, this trend, and this has been a discussion that's been going on for a long time, and people are on both sides of the fence here, but the idea of um, hunting effort, we talked about hunter days you know, earlier, 
the hunting effort has has shifted from of those seven plus million hunter days we have in Wisconsin. Um, as much as we talk about the gun season as being king, and there's there's you know five hundred and seventy thousand people participating in that narrow window of time um, that used to be dominating the hunting effort. Well because of the archery seasons being so much longer and the opportunities, the, the actual hunter days are two thirds invested in bow and crossbow hunting, mm. one third invested in firearm hunting. And that just has slowly changed from the late, um, you know, 1990s to today. It's just been a steady, you know, whereas it used to be 80% firearm harvest and 20% archery, um, whether you want to talk about just, general interest, um, general perception of opportunity, because as the deer population was growing in the 90s and early 2000s, more people wanted to get in on that action. And of course, the advanced equipment and all that type of thing. But it just, it was a very steady line where it was slowly shifting toward um, more of the bucks harvested during the archery seasons into and, and the, the trade-off being, you know, they're not taken in the gun season. And, but there's, and people want to say, well, there was periods of time where it really changed, whether it was the advent of the compound bow and now the advent of, of the crossbow. But interestingly, the trend lines don't show any kind of blips or changes in trajectory, you know, when things, when weapon types change. Mm. It's, it's more driven by hunter interest and time and when they want to hunt. And that was, and we've seen this in other states too. Um, and in some states, those two lines have met, you know, where it's half and half. And in some cases, I imagine there might be a few states where they're taking more deer with bows and crossbows than, than with firearms. But in Wisconsin, we're at about 60-40, where it's still 60% firearm, 40% um, bow and crossbow. And what's interesting is, again, I said earlier, the last three years have been kind of atypical. So that trend flattened out now. Um, the last three years. So I wouldn't call it a trend, but so it'll be curious now, is this a temporary flattening or have things stabilized? And, and um, we'll only know by watching this, you know, play out. And, and there's a few other States we can look at to kind of anticipate, well, this is how it played out in Ohio, for example. So are we going to see the same thing in Wisconsin? But it is interesting that, that those lines have flattened out the last, the last three years, but I'm not convinced that it means things have stabilized. Again, things we've had some unique variables the last three years. Yeah, if there's anything we we know these last couple of years, there's not a lot that we can uh, that we can bank on from them. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> Been just a, a really weird, really weird couple of years. Uh, so we're coming up on that time of the year when uh, deer advisory council meetings are going to be happening, right? Uh, you mentioned in the email that those are coming up. Um, for those who maybe aren't familiar, maybe folks that didn't catch our previous uh, episode that we did together, can you sort of explain uh, what the CDACs are and how they function and how people can get involved? Maybe uh, maybe what kind of feedback and involvement is helpful? Because I imagine there are ways of relating to the CDACs that are very helpful, and there are probably ways that aren't very helpful. Uh, so can you kind of go into some of that? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, in a quick nutshell, the County Deer Advisory Councils were established in 2014 as the new mechanism for how we 
um, basically interact and provide public input um, into the deer season setting structure. And, and we do this annually. I mean, in some states, you know, they, they maybe don't do it annually. But again, when Wisconsin deer is a big deal and, and people are interested in putting a lot of time and effort into it. And so the creation of these advisory councils is intended to have a representative group that, that represent the multiple stakeholders that have an interest in what's going on with the deer season. And so their, their, their sole purpose is to make a recommendation as to what the antlerless harvest quota should be for their deer management unit, in most cases, which is the county. Some counties are split if they find themselves on the border between the forest and the farmland zone. And so they have two decisions to make in those cases. But they basically gather in March and the department, we present to them all of the statistics that we were just talking about at their unit level and say, all right, here's what happened during the hunting season in 2021. Here's that. Here's how that fits into the recent history and trends. And here's what we think it means um, in terms of what the deer population is doing and what it's going to be in 2022. But now given that, where do you guys and gals sit with the recommendation for what we should do in 2022? In, in simplest terms, should we leave things alone? Should we increase the antlerless quota? Should we decrease the antlerless quota to generate a certain outcome towards what their, their population objective is, whether they want to see the herd grow or, or shrink or stay the same? And so that whole process leads to them making a preliminary recommendation at a public meeting um, and the last two years, they've been virtual. The good side of that is it makes it actually easier for people to attend because sure, sure. they don't have to travel, but it's harder to interact, right? I mean, yep. for a lot of lot of people that way. But you can at least listen to the discussion. We do try to create an opportunity for, for that interaction. But they'll come out of that meeting with a preliminary recommendation, and then we will summarize all of that and we'll put it out to the public in an online public input tool in April and give folks a week or so to say, here's what your CDAC recommended. What do you think about it? You know, are you good with that? Or do you think it should be different? Uh, higher, lower, that type of thing. So then we'll gather all of that and give that back to the CDACs and they'll get together again, late April or early May this year and say, all right, now considering that public feedback, we're either going to keep our preliminary recommendation or we're going to adjust it. Um, and so we go through that process and, and with ultimately that leads to their recommendation that comes to the department and then to the natural resources board for a final, you know, final decision. So you asked about, well, how do people participate in that? Um, number one is, you know, seek out the meeting and, and if nothing else, just listen to it. I, even when the meetings were in person, um, one of my frustrations has been that the attendance is from the public has been on the lower side. And it's a frustration of the CDAC members too. They're investing a lot of their personal time and they'd like to see people come because the discussions that happen, I think are really interesting and enlightening. And um, uh, when, when people do tend to, do tend to come in larger numbers, it's when they perceive that the CDAC's preliminary recommendation was controversial mm. and they want it to be different in their final gotcha. recommendation. Then they'll show, then they'll show up, yep. you know, to, yep. to weigh in. And that's, 
perfectly fine. That's part of the system. But it'd be great to have them participate in the first meeting and really weigh in or, or on taking in all of the things that are influencing the deer population. Because one of the things I've said is that the, the response you'll get from a group of people that have several hours of time invested in looking at all of the variables and then they're what their recommendation going forward would be is going to be different than any one individual that just says, well, oh, my deer season last year was terrible. And, and I think they need to make a change or my deer season was great. And uh, so leave it alone. Um, so the, the, again, weighing that public input is a, is a tricky thing and it's a challenge, but if people come in on the front end, they can you know, listen to the CDAC meeting. The other thing that we have available that a lot, I think a lot of people aren't aware of is a, on our website, we have what's called the Deer Metrics System. And that's the database that the CDACs are using to visually see what you and I have just been talking about. Mm. And we update that every year. Again, it's not ready yet for 2021. It, this month of February, we're building it all. And in early March, we will update that Deer Metrics system. And then again, anyone can go on our website, type in in the search box, Deer Metrics system. Then you, you can go and look at your county and look at the past eight years of harvest data and, and um, population estimates and all these variables and metrics that the CDACs are taking into consideration. And, and so elevate their own understanding of what's going on in the county and then make a contribution of their opinion th through that online um, uh, input tool we will put out in April. And then, and then just pay attention, track the system, read the minutes will be posted. They can read the minutes if they miss the meeting. And um, um, it's, yeah, we try to make it available for anyone that's interested. So are these meetings going to be virtual this year as well? Yeah, certainly the, the first meetings, which are going to happen in late March, um, you know, we're, we're still at trends and in, in pandemic considerations that are uh, not conducive to the in-person meetings. And so gotcha. um, we'll wait. The, the second round of meetings will be the last week of April, first week of May. Maybe things will change. We're, we're planning at this point to have it set up for virtual. And, um, and as we know, there are certain things that even when the pandemic is in the rear view mirror, there are certain things we probably will continue to do virtually because it improves access um, in terms of more people. But I know we're all, myself included, are hungry to get back together because some of the relationship building and just the interactions, uh, you know, are just, they're just better when you're able to shake hands and be across the table from somebody. Yep, for sure. So if people want to find out sort of when these meetings are going to be, just go to the DNR website. Right. We're still in the process of scheduling them, you know, county by okay. county. And uh, sometime in, in early March, you know, well, there'll be a news release that says um, these are the dates and times. And here's the, um, the link, you know, to join the meeting virtually, whether it's um, we'll, we'll use the Zoom platform. Um, and it, it'll also come with a phone number for those that that don't have computer access. They'll be able to call in. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So uh, the last thing that that I really wanted to to dive into is something you mentioned in the email. And Pat Durkin recently wrote an article about it for I believe it was for the meat eater. It may have been for a local outlet here in Wisconsin, but I'm not positive. Um, but it was talking about hunter safety 
and the seasons that we've had and sort of the trends that we've seen as far as uh, hunting being a safe thing. Now, I'll, I'll say this was my very first um, firearm season on public land in the state of Wisconsin. I didn't bother going out on public land last year uh, because of what I'd heard. I went out this year and uh, pretty quickly had a half moon of seven guys around me that I could see from where I was sitting. And it made me uneasy given my background and how I'm, how I'm used to hunting. It made me uneasy, but we all got out of the, got out of the woods that morning. Everything was fine. Looks like incidents are very, very low and no one was mistaken for a deer. So tell me about what we've been seeing with those, with those trends of, of safety in the woods when it comes to the firearm season. Yeah, that's really important, of course, and we've got a, a real proud track record that goes back decades now that really is on the backs of those volunteer hunter education instructors and the mandatory hunter education, and, and that has, you know, shifted over time now with, again, advances in technologies and more efficiencies as how to address that education, and the the statistics continue to be really good on that, even when people are taking in a lot of that education, you know, virtually or, or online. But it, it, it comes down to, you know, how many incidents are happening. And you can describe that in accidents per million participants or 100,000 participants or however you want to slice and dice that. And of, and of course, every accident is one too many. But um, when we compare the way things are now to the way things used to be. I mean, we're in a much better place. Um, this past year, we had, you know, six incidents with 600,000 deer hunters. So again, about one per 100,000 participants. So, you know, statistically a really small thing. But the thing to point out this year, especially, is that every accident that happened, all of them, you know, really, really unfortunate, and in some cases, tragic, and you, not to dismiss any of them, but to note that in every case, the, it was a result of an unintended discharge of the weapon. You know, so it was mm. a, a firearm handling mishap. And it wasn't that somebody took a shot at a deer or intended object and, and accidentally hit a person or, or something of that nature. And so that that is important to understand when you look at over the course of time, because it does play into people's perception of whether it's participation or even access to deer hunting, right? Because some people in some places uh, feel that deer hunting, firearm deer hunting, may be mutually exclusive to other activities because of the perceived uh, safety issue. And what, what this, the kind of the thing to draw from here is that um, firearm deer hunting isn't mutually exclusive to other things going on in the landscape when done safely and appropriately and, and in a track record there, it's been really, really good. If you look back in the history, there have been some really unfortunate incidents where somebody has made a terrible mistake and they did intentionally shoot, you know, their weapon um, and, and struck, you know, an unintended object and specifically if it was another person but those incidents are getting rarer and rarer and so we see uh, situations where people have this discussion of well should or shouldn't there be deer hunting at this time of the year or in this location and the more we can elevate that awareness of the the, the, the safe activity that it really is with the, the uh, re regulations that are in place um, it's great that 
that allows more people to participate and feel good doing so. And for the 80% of Wisconsinites that don't um, participate, feel comfortable that this isn't, um, you know, a real um, threat to their lifestyle or their um, interests during that time of the year. Yeah, I think that's really, really important. I was part of the part of that crowd that would have said, "Hey, I'm not so sure I want to participate in this." Who who knows what could happen? So to hear that, not only you know do we have a, an outstanding season when it comes to safety, but this is part of a trend that we've been seeing go on for for years and years, really gives me a lot of confidence, and I hope uh, causes a lot of guys to to not uh, avoid doing it because you know for me, I avoided doing it last year. Just because I felt like I didn't, I didn't have access to a piece of private land that was conducive for for firearms hunting, and so I just stayed home, you know, for for the morning. I just I missed the whole thing, and uh, yeah, I think that's really important for people to uh, one to increase awareness that there is access that's that's safe and viable for you, um, but two, make you feel good while you're out there doing it, like you're you're not yeah. having to yeah. not having to worry when you're walking out of the woods that hey somebody's gonna take a shot and and mistake you for something else. Yeah, there's a bunch of us that remember, you know, the 1980s when it did, you know, people describe that as it sounded like a war zone on opening weekend on yep. a big public land that had high deer densities, especially in the central forest areas on public lands. And and there was a lot, you heard a lot of shooting going on and, and collectively you'd get the sense of, wow. And, and it was still, you'll talk to people that kind of will try to measure opening weekend based on the number of shots they've heard. Yep. And, and they, they track that and, 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 and they'll use that as another reference to, well, this opening weekend was up or down because this year I heard 30 shots and last year I heard 50 shots or, and, and they're going back to our previous discussion. There's a couple of things influencing that too. Hunting strategies changed, weapons have changed. And so we don't have the frequency of, shots fired doesn't equate to the opportunities to see deer or shoot at deer because uh, there's a number of changes that are kind of reducing uh, the the number of shots that are probably fired per deer being taken. Yep. Yeah. Four guys pushing an area out and taking shots at something that takes off and runs across the marsh uh, produces a lot less, a lot fewer shots than one guy sitting uh, over a scrape in the timber. Right, right, right. So tell me, uh, you know, you're the you are the deer program specialist. It is your job to be uh, not only to do all the things you do, but to feel positive and excited about deer hunting here in the state of Wisconsin. And I think I ended our previous interview by saying, what's what's exciting to you when it comes to uh, the state of deer hunting in Wisconsin? And I want to do the same thing now, and maybe ask the question: What's coming down the pike that people who hunt deer can be looking forward to as far as quality of experience moving forward? I think the thing that, that has caught me this year uh, that's notable is this continued acknowledgement and awareness that, that everyone doesn't want the same thing out of deer hunting Mm. and the acceptance that, Hey, you do your thing. I'll do mine. If it makes you happy and satisfied in the end, um, good for you. And don't let someone else's expectation or judgment on what is or isn't acceptable um, influence what you're doing. And it's okay for you to do it this way. Now, that to a certain extent, there are sideboards and parameters that we do have in place 
that are intended to create some degree of equity and access. And, um, and, and that is important. And so there are situations where somebody would perceive somebody else's actions or behavior as, as having a negative influence on them. But having open discussions about that are, are the way to go forward. And I see that happening. And whether it's through different social media platforms or um, th those can also be a, a real problem where sometimes, again, people just use it to vent and you would get the impression that things are really, really terrible based on the content and the ideas that are being exchanged. But I've also seen more open dialogue and acknowledgement that, hey, just because this is the way this article says you should do it um, doesn't mean that's the only way to do it. And, and I like that. It, it creates more room for more people, again, just to feel comfortable in doing it the way they find it to be satisfying and rewarding. Yeah. I, you know, I see that not only around me, but I, I see that coming, uh, from a lot of the folks who are in what is the, the popular deer hunting media of today, you know, a lot more of that drive of do it how you want to do it, do it how you enjoy. Um, you know, I, I think of like the okayest hunter podcast, they do a great job of, of, you know, shoot what makes you happy kind of thing, you know, um, hunt your hunt, you know, let that be, uh, let it be about you and your experience, uh, as long as we, it's within the bounds of, of the law, right? Uh, do, mm -hmm. do what it is that you want to do, do what brings you the experience that you want to have. So, well, Jeff, thanks for coming on this episode. Another fantastic co uh, conversation with you. Uh, where could folks go if they wanted to either hear more from you or keep up to date on, uh, everything that's coming from you guys as this data is being analyzed? Sure. Thanks, Josh. And always a pleasure too. And looking forward to doing it again down, down the road, but r really our, we try to do a really good job with our website. Um, if you looked at it right now, it may not look that up to date because we we're still carrying off the 2021 information. It's all going to change a lot over the next month. So going to our website, um, going specifically into the CDAC, the County Deer Advisory Council page, um, again, it's it's outdated at the moment, but over the next month, we're going to be putting new resources in there. Um, I'm going to be doing some some recorded PowerPoint narrated videos that people can watch at their own leisure um, that are zone based. So I'm going to do one for the northern forest, the central forest, and then the central farmland and the southern farmland as a as a precursor to the CDAC meeting. And so you know you'll you'll get to hear a little bit of that as a, as a as we get tuned up and get excited about the CDAC meetings and then um, access to all that CDAC information we talked about is really um, the, the place to go right now. Awesome. Awesome. Well, as always, fantastic conversation with you. Thanks for joining me today. You bet, Josh. Do it again. <laughs>